If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. Today's interview is with the historian Hannah Rose Murray. She's written a piece in our August issue, On Sale Now, in which she tells the stories of African-American abolitionists who travelled to Britain in the 19th century to seek support for their campaigns against slavery in the US. And this was also the subject of this discussion, with questions put to her by our world history editor, Matt Elton. Your research uh, explores a perhaps surprising uh, area of British history, doesn't it? What what do you explore? So my research looks at African-Americans coming over to the British Isles during the 19th century, primarily the 1840s, 1850s and 1860s. And these women and men um, were born into slavery in the southern states of the US and um, they travelled thousands of miles and gave hundreds of thousands of speeches all the way around the British Isles. And it's really no exaggeration to say they gave thousands of speeches. They were speaking in small villages like Ventnor on the Isle of Wight. They were speaking in Bakewell and the Peak Districts in Keswick. They were speaking in Inverness, as well as some of the larger towns and cities um, around uh, Britain and Ireland as well. Obviously, London, Manchester, Birmingham, Sheffield, Edinburgh, the places that we might associate with abolition or with large meetings. And in doing so, they were um, trying to convince and educate the British and Irish public about uh, slavery, how that was a a system that was sustained uh, by torture, rape, uh, racism, white supremacy, and um, trying to convince them through um, exhibiting sort of whips of torture and uh, instruments of uh, of torture as well, like chains and manacles um, to sort of illustrate that brutality. This is something I knew nothing about. Um, how how many people travelled from the states to Britain, and do we know how they got here? Was it an organised thing? How did it work? So that's a, a great question. We don't know for sure how many people were coming over. Um, some historians, like Richard Lackett, have estimated that um, about 150 um, people came over um, across the 19th century. Uh, people were coming, obviously, in the 1840s, but they were still coming sort of after slavery had legally been abolished as well um, in the 1880s and the 1890s. Um, 
And in terms of their tours, um, they were coming sometimes individually and sometimes through organized sort of abolitionist societies or networks. So sometimes they were supported by a specific uh, anti-slavery society like the American Anti-Slavery Society led by William Lloyd Garrison in the US. Sometimes they were supported by Canadian anti-slavery societies. And usually if they were supported by a specific society or they knew contacts or British abolitionists, then that tended to mean that their tour was likely to be more successful. So, for example, Frederick Douglass, who is the the best example when we talk about transatlantic abolition and people who were coming over, he was supported by Garrison and the American Anti-Savory Society. Garrison had numerous British friends and contacts across Britain and Ireland. So Douglass was able to stay in places like um, Dublin with Richard D. Webb. He was staying in Bristol with the Esselin family, in Newcastle with the, uh, the Richardson family. And they were able to organise meetings for him in churches, local town halls, sometimes getting the fee for this, the town hall wavered. Um, and obviously, if you had that support, um, then you know they were likely to know newspaper editors as well who could then write a favourable coverage of their speech. And that sort of maximised publicity for the anti-slavery cause and also reverberated back to the US as well. Um, But it meant that their journeys were a lot more successful. Whereas if you compare it to some individuals like Moses Roper, who um, came over first in the late 1830s, he did actually have anti-slavery support um, by chiefly George Thompson, who's one of the most famous British abolitionists. But um, later on, there was a bit of falling out with him in the British abolitionist movement. And um, he's had to sort of set, uh, go around Britain um, on his own, which meant that his tour in terms of the newspaper cover and the amount of people that he could reach was somewhat limited. We should probably set this in the context of what was happening with slavery, I suppose, both in Britain and in in America. Um, How had abolition developed by the time we reached the period we're talking about here? Yeah, so basically in uh, in Britain, uh, the British um, government and Britain had abolished the slave trade in 1807 um, and slavery in the British Empire um, by the end of the 1830s, although slavery did actually still exist in some parts of the empire. In terms of the US, slavery um, had existed uh, in the Americas since the 16th century um, and uh, slavery wasn't actually legally abolished in the US until 1865, which is why you see a large majority of women and men coming over in the 1840s and 1850s and 1860s. And there are a couple of um, spikes, if you like, in the kind of movement. So you had um, in 1850, the US passed uh, possibly one of the most draconian laws in its history called the uh, 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, which um, basically gave the US government um, and people federal power to um, drag uh, formerly enslaved people who had perhaps uh, escaped to the North or Canada uh, back into the jaws of slavery. So after that, there were several activists who actually came over to Britain to live um, because they uh, were able to live without that fear of being dragged back into slavery. Um, But uh, it also created a a wave um, of abolitionist support um, and also conflict in the US, as you can imagine, but particularly in the UK in terms of support for that. Um, and also you had the civil war uh, between 1861 and 1865 and that also led to um, quite a large wave of uh, African Americans coming over to really educate the British public about why the civil war was being fought that the confederacy so the southern states um, that had succeeded from the union were 
um, and had succeeded because of slavery. Um, there was a lot of um, misinformation and propaganda um, and just general ignorance about why the Civil War um, had been fought in Britain at the time, uh, was, uh, was being fought at the time. And um, men and women um, who had experienced slavery, who um, had experienced um, torture um, and sexual abuse had come all the way over to the UK to say, the South do not fight for the freedom that they are espousing. They fight for slavery and perpetuation of white supremacy. And why did these people choose Britain and Ireland specifically to come to? Okay, so they came to Britain and Ireland for numerous uh, reasons. So obviously the main one is there's a shared language there. And one of the things that they did when they came to um, the British Isles was publish their narratives. And slave narratives were a form of protest literature. You can go and find them uh, online. There's, uh, there's lots that you, can, um, that you can read for free. And um, these slave narratives were um, given sort of English editions as well. They were published in places like London and Edinburgh and, and Dublin. Uh, and even actually in, in Welsh, Moses Roper's slave narrative was, was published in Welsh, which is uh, really uh, exciting. And uh, as I mentioned, because of the sort of shared connections between Britain, uh, British and American abolitionists, you had the, the same connections between societies. So if they were sharing or donating money to a particular society uh, in Britain that could be um, sent back to uh, their friends and connections uh, in the US. Again, I mentioned Garrison. This is probably the best example. Um, Garrison had loads of friends in the UK who were collecting donations on part uh, of the American Anti-Slavery Society and those donations were collected at meetings that were given by African-Americans. So that's a really key thing. Um, one of the other things as well is that African-Americans sometimes encouraged a boycott of slave-produced goods. So men like Henry Highland Garner and James Watkins were telling their audiences and saying that, you know, you are wearing um, blood-soaked cotton because in the 1850s you had... Uh, you know, 90% of the cotton that was imported into Liverpool was slave grown. So you had that kind of connection to American slavery. You know, Garnet and Watkins were saying that you shouldn't be um, eating rice, you shouldn't be wearing that cotton, you shouldn't be, you know, consuming sugar. Um, and if you really cared about, um, you know, their, as they, as they said it, their oppressed brethren um, all the way over in the US who were toiling um, in, in slavery, then you wouldn't be uh, using or associating yourself with those items. And what can we tell about um, how these formerly enslaved people felt about the experiences of coming to this strange new country and of meeting these people? Yeah, because they wrote a lot about it, it's actually really, um, really wonderful reading and really, in a way, easy to tell. So a lot of the reactions that African-American women and men had when they came to Britain and Ireland was their immediate reaction was there is an absence of extreme racism. Now, I'll say up front that racism did exist in the British Isles. Discrimination did exist. They did experience said racism and discrimination. There were African-American uh, men and women who came over who tried to uh, get a job in Britain and they were barred because of their colour. However, some of the more um, sort of famous lecturers, again, like Frederick Douglass or William Moss Brown, Henry Highland Garnet, they liked to say, I have not experienced racism in this country because it was a performative tactic to set 
up a deliberate comparison between the UK and the US. They had to go thousands of miles away, abroad, outside of their own country where they were born to experience what they called you know, their first sense of freedom and citizenship compared um, to the US. So Frederick Douglass liked to say that he could eat wherever he wanted, he could sit in a church wherever he wanted, there wasn't a, a so-called Negro pew as there was in the US. He could travel around these his um, um, sort of experience of mobility was just so far beyond what he'd experienced in the US. And when he gave lectures um, across the eastern uh, United States, he was mobbed, he was beaten, he was nearly murdered in 1843. So there was a, a stark difference there. Um, uh, many of them experienced very um, sort of warm and cherished friendships with British and Irish abolitionists, some for the rest of their lives. They corresponded in, until the day um, they died. They had created these really, um, these really sort of strong relationships um, that, that sustained each other, um, you know, for, um, for the rest of their lives. And um, the other thing as well um, we have to remember is that, um, as I mentioned, there were some individuals who um, did come over to the UK. And while most of them in their lectures were sort of saying that they didn't experience racism or congratulating the UK on abolishing slavery. Again, that can be seen as a performative tactic. They also in their lectures said, well, yes, you did abolish slavery, but you had to pay compensation to um, enslavers. Where was the compensation um, for the enslaved? And um, there were men like Samuel Ward who said to a York audience in 1854, and he said, um, the, the land of England has been reddened with the blood of my race. And he's really getting into these sorts of narratives of colonialism, imperialism, but also, again, that kind of language of blood um, that uh, the British and Irish public were um, actually connected to slavery in so many different ways that they hadn't considered before. You've mentioned a couple of sort of performative techniques that people used. Do we get a sense of what it must have been like to go and watch one of these talks? Were there other techniques? Were there other things that they did to help bring people on board? Yeah, that's a really great question. I could talk for hours about this because um, obviously, you know, considering the the amount of people that were coming over and giving these lectures, there were so many different tactics that, um, you know, these black men and women were using. So you had people like um, Moses Roper who would um, exhibit um, whip, uh, instruments of torture, so whips, manacles, chains, as I mentioned earlier. Sometimes he would actually exhibit his own scarred and mutilated back um, to really illustrate um, the brutality of slavery. You had uh, people like Henry Box Brown, who is sort of famous in, in, in this field um, for his miraculous escape from slavery. He basically uh, was born in slave just outside of Richmond in Virginia, and he posted himself in a box from uh, Richmond all the way to uh, Freedom in Philadelphia. Now, he found that uh, he was um, a gifted entertainer and sort of virtuoso of the entertainment stage. So he exhibited that box in the US and then he brought that box over to the UK and he did all sorts of performative things with it. Um, he exhibited the box, he put himself into the box again and boxed himself up um, on a train between Bradford and Leeds and then sort of came, came out of the box in this sort of, you know, uh, sort of... Um, kind of performative uh, jack-in-the-box almost. And he starred in plays based on his own life and also um, um, plays and performances that were related to slavery as well. He, uh, he also exhibited what was called a panorama. So really what we could see as a form of early cinema. There was this huge, huge painting on a thousand feet of canvas that was um, basically rolled from one side of a, um, of a theatre to another to kind of 
uh, portray the sense of movement. And there were other panoramas that were uh, being sort of shown and exhibited on the London stage. And some of them um, looked at the Mississippi River, for example, and, and how and how lovely the, the South looked. And Henry Box Brown created a panorama that showed the history of slavery because he said, you look at these panoramas in the Mississippi River, they are deliberately missing and um, deliberately choosing not to focus on the history of slavery. So I will show you my history of slavery. I will show you the history of my ancestors who were kidnapped by Europeans and obviously taken over to um, the US. Um, so he was showing panoramas. Um, Ellen Craft, who um, is one of my favorite people from history. Um, I urge everyone to go and look her up and read her story, but she um, escaped slavery with her husband in Georgia. Now, Ellen had quite a fair complexion because of the rape of her mother by um, her enslaver. And uh, William and Ellen decided to basically dress Ellen in um, a gentleman's clothing. So she was crossing the boundaries of race, of class, um, of uh, gender, and also physical ability because enslaved people were forbidden to learn to read and write. And in order for William and Ellen to escape slavery, they had to obviously sign the name for tickets, which she couldn't do. So she bandaged her right arm to pretend that she couldn't, um, that she couldn't write. But anyway, so she, um, they managed to enact this incredible escape attempt and um, they actually um, settled over in the UK um, for nearly 20 years and raised five children here in freedom. And uh, Ellen um, and William would uh, go all the way around the UK and um, William would give a lot of um, obviously anti-slavery speeches and things like that. And sometimes her portrait, her image dressed as that um, gentleman, as that white enslaver was sold at the end of, of meetings. And sort of the last um, story I quickly tell is about Frederick Douglass, and uh, I'm sure we'll get into him in a little bit, but he um, was excellent at um, oratory. He had this ability to use blistering rhetoric to convince British, the British and Irish public about not only how they were connected to slavery, but how at that very moment in which he was speaking to the audience in which he was speaking to, there were three or four million um, black men, women and children who were toiling in slavery. He knew what they suffered because he had suffered that feeling. And he was so adept at being able to persuade people about um, what that felt like, although obviously his minority white audience could never feel um, what it was to be enslaved. That's an interesting point, actually. Do we know what kinds of people... Um, came to these kinds of talks and do we know what their reactions were like? Yeah, so the short answer to your question is uh, everyone came. <laughs> so you, you looked at um, uh, these these men and women were speaking to uh, upper class audiences, sometimes aristocratic gatherings, and sometimes either in you know even sort of in the the homes of, of their wealthy patrons. Um, they were speaking to sort of middle class merchants and printers, but they were also speaking to working class audiences. Sometimes specifically organising meetings for the working classes. So Henry Box Brown, I mentioned, he would often sell tickets for his meetings, but he would give discounted rates for working class women and men. Um, the other thing as well that's really important to note is that um, African-Americans were also speaking to children's audiences. So sometimes they on, on a Sunday, there would be like a Sunday school or there would be a specific gathering organized um, of children um, and they would um, speak for an hour, sometimes two hours, and they would tell children their stories. And that happened again in Scotland, England, Ireland, Wales. And um, they would um, use these meetings to really 
try and encourage these children to grow up as abolitionists to sort of create an, a, a legacy um, of, uh, of further uh, abolitionist agitation and to grow up not showing the prejudices of perhaps their parents, um, friends or, or, or um, uh, leaders in their community had perhaps shown. Hmm. And how do people respond? Yes. So again, depending on the subject of the lecture and the particular person, the response is varied. Largely as a whole, the, these uh, African-American activists were incredibly popular. They packed out town halls, churches, um, any kind of venue, even sometimes sort of outside spaces. You, you know, when we think of the abolition, abolitionist movement, we think sometimes of Exeter Hall, which is um, where this uh, used to sit on the strand and Frederick Douglass spoke to over 6,000 people there and um, sort of extraordinary numbers and when we read the newspapers we can get this really lovely idea um, in some of these meetings about how hundreds um, came to listen to these men and women sometimes hundreds were turned away because there was physically not enough room to uh, in that particular venue to listen to them they were cramming all of the aisles uh, there's a really beautiful anecdote in Colchester in 1847, listening to one activist where there was um, sort of 500 people crammed in this tiny church and um, some people were turned away and they basically came around the side of the church to crane their necks to listen through an open window. Um, going back into the actual venue, um, obviously you can um, try and imagine the, the absolute the heat of this sort of town hall or, or church with all these people packed in. And um, if uh, a particular activist was obviously very passionate in their oratory, again, like someone like Frederick Douglass or William Craft, um, they would completely stir the audience, um, you know, to fits of passion themselves. You know, there are accounts where you know, people are stamping their feet so loud that it almost rattles the windows. So you get these really beautiful sort of social history uh, anecdotes here. But also it's really important to note as well that there were some slightly negative reactions. As you can imagine, if um, those, again, like Samuel Ward, who mentioned that um, comment about British imperialism, if they were being very um, deliberate and, and wanted to accuse their British audience of their ignorance, of their um, lack of awareness, or um, the fact that, again, they were consuming slave-produced um, products, perhaps with that knowledge, um, that didn't necessarily go down well. So um, as these performances were obviously live, they were site-specific, it was almost like a theatre. That meant that uh, if a particular activist said something that the audience didn't like, that meant that they were going to be interrupted. They were going to be shouted at. They were going to be... Um, uh, people were going to leave. And that happened um, several times. And um, depending on um, the uh, ability of the, the lecturer, again, Frederick D Douglass is just such a good example. He was interrupted once in a speech in, in London um, and this particular man just didn't believe what he was saying and um, he sort of interrupted Douglas and said well what is the price of a slave worth and Douglas instantly replies the, the price of a slave in Louisiana is matched by the price of a, a pound of cotton in Manchester and the guy is completely silenced because um, he can't you can't compete with that um, that level of, uh, of oratory. Um, but the last thing I mentioned is, uh, I, I mentioned Moses Roper earlier, and um, Roper exhibited those instruments of torture. He sometimes exhibited um, his own scarred back. 
And unlike some of the other activists that came around and traveled around the UK, he was incredibly graphic about the torture that he had experienced. He would tell stories of how in one instance he was whipped 150 times, um, which resulted in, um, in his scarred and mutilated back, uh, at the same time as holding up this particular whip. And as you can imagine, um, this, you know, was um, some very, very difficult to, to hear for this sort of almost sensitive white Victorian audience, sometimes middle class. And sometimes Roper's stories were so blunt, they were so graphic, that that meant that the audience couldn't comprehend what Roper was saying. Um, and demonstrating um, sort of quite a lot of sort of racial sort of paternalism, they basically decided that Roper wasn't a real survivor of slavery. They basically said, well, what you're saying is so untrue. I can't believe it. It's so unbelievable that therefore you must be making it up. And he was interrupted and shouted down. Um, he was sometimes turned away from, from specific venues if somebody heard that, oh, this Roper is coming around and sharing lies. Um, and again, um, Roper's story and this sort of story of inauthenticity was linked to the British abolitionist movement as well. There were a couple of British abolitionists who decided to ruin Roper's reputation in the British press and basically um, uh, renounce, renounce him and, and make it harder for him to earn a living and also just to, to live in Britain and work safely. And that was because white British abolitionists couldn't understand or comprehend what Roper was saying. That seems so um, contradictory in so many ways. It is. I think what we, the image that we have of the transatlantic abolitionist movement is that it was a very um, united movement, but actually it was just riddled with tensions. So it was riddled with tensions, you know, between the white anti-slavery societies, because I've been talking about Garrison a lot. I mean, he had obviously a lot of friends in all of these places around the British Isles. The Garrisonian movement believed that slavery should end immediately. It should end now. It should end absolutely now. And, um, and, uh, you know, to, to stop the suffering of um, in, you know, enslaved women and men and children. Now, there were other abolitionist movements, um, both in the UK uh, and in the US. Um, there were groups that didn't believe slavery should be um, abolished immediately. There was sort of a, a movement where it was sort of uh, preferred to be a more gradual approach. So, okay, let's pick a date in five, ten years' time where slavery can definitely end, but just sort of prepare for that. So there were those sorts of tensions. But there, there were also tensions um, that were uh, firmly and, and based on race. And that's not something that we discuss or, or write about in terms of um, British abolitionists and American abolitionists. But just because you were an abolitionist, it did not mean that you were anti-racist or that you were free from the white privilege that um, obviously you bore. So um, the abolitionists who slandered and ruined uh, Roper's reputation um, had no qualms about it. Um, they demonstrated this um, sort of paternalism over visiting activists. So, for example, in another way this manifested itself was that if an individual came over to raise money to purchase their own legal freedom from uh, slavery or perhaps uh, and, um, their family or brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, daughters, ch you know, children, um, British abolitionists decided, well, I will look after that money for you. You cannot be trusted to look after that money. Um, so obviously there's a kind of um, strand of, of racism there. Um, and again, um, there was an element of control as well with certain activists who came over. Um, there, there was a sort of deliberate decision to try and control where they were going, where they shouldn't go, where they should try and publish their narratives, um, what they should say even on the anti-slavery um, sort of circuit. 
Again, Frederick Douglass, before he came to the UK, he was told by the abolitionist movement, stick to the facts, we will take care of the philosophy. So what they wanted was Douglass to stand up and um, share the facts of his enslaved life and to step back down again. Now, Douglass was a radical thinker and a philosopher in his own right. And he basically turned around and said, I, I felt like denouncing those facts. I didn't just feel like retelling those facts. I wanted to create a philosophy for myself. And he did that in the British Isles and also when he returned um, back uh, to the uh, to the US as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Um, if you were uh, sort of a moral and if you were a true Christian person, not a Christi- Christian who had been sort of polluted by that sort of um, evil influence of slavery, then it was your duty to um, to end it or to raise up your voice or to amplify the testimony of these women and men. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When they were over here giving these amazing lectures, where, where were these people staying? Were they staying with, with, with families, with the organisers? How did that work? Yeah, it's a really great question about networks because I think it ties into what I was saying about the success of these anti-slavery tours. So for, again, someone like Roper, he was staying in you know, um, taverns or anywhere that he could basically get a room for the night because he didn't have that level of support. And he was visiting tiny, tiny rural villages in, you know, in Wales and Cornwall and Scotland and places like that. So he was staying wherever he could get a room. Um, People who had certain support. um, So again, some of the other men and women I've mentioned, Sarah Parker Remond as well, actually is another um, really interesting figure. Um, They had support from uh, William Lloyd Garrison or from American abolitionists who had connections in the US. So they would stay with these families. They would stay with um, friends in the movement. Um, and, and sometimes um, they also stayed with um, with each other. So William Nellan Craft, who stayed here for 20 years, they lived um, in Hammersmith for a while. Um, and Sarah Parker Remond, who came over um, to the British Isles and gave a lecturing tour, um, Sarah, Sarah stayed with, um, with William and Ellen for a short time. Um, so obviously, you know, these sort of networks of kinship and community um, and black solidarity were 
um, were incredibly important and more important perhaps than obviously these these shared white networks because with those white networks and with those white abolitionists although a lot of abolitionists were incredibly supportive of these figures again as i mentioned they weren't free from that stamp of racism and white supremacy and white privilege so staying with um members of their own kinship and community william allen craft and sarah parker remond had obviously that freedom um you know to um nourish each other and also have that solidarity between themselves Mm. And did their their speeches, and I suppose also their presence, just their very presence in this country, did it have an effect? Can we trace the impact of these of these experiences? Yeah, so impact's a really interesting question because I think the first thing I'd say about that is that the you know the British and Irish press were writing quite literally millions of words. Um, about their experiences. I mean, I'm, I've transcribed thousands of articles um, from, you know, ed- any publication that you can think of from Cornwall um, all, the, all the way to, to Scotland. And um, they were writing um, quite, a lot of co- co- quite a lot of coverage about their lectures and things like that. They were also um, raising support for, um, um, particularly if an individual came over and said, I need to raise X amount of money to legally purchase myself or members of my family. Um, we can see that impact in that within a short few months, that money was raised instantly by ordinary um, you know, British and Irish people. Um, we can also um, see the impact in the number of slave narratives that were sold. Um, Frederick Douglass's slave narrative sold um, thousands of copies here. Moses Roper's um, sold 5,000 copies in Welsh and 20,000 copies in English within um, sort of seven years. And um, even up to the 1870s, when Josiah Henson um, comes back over for a second time, um, his narrative um, uh, actually um, sells nearly got a quarter of a million copies. So it's an, a really extreme um, uh, and sort of wonderful, you know, uh, sort of demonstration of that impact. But one of the other stories I think which is really key to this level of impact is um, how women and men were able to use such um, uh, controversies or events or particular instances to drum up support um, for the anti-slavery cause. So I mentioned the American Civil War. I think that um, obviously Britain didn't um, necessarily recognise the Confederacy, but I think the British and Irish public had a greater understanding about um, uh, what the South fought for um, and what the Confederacy fought for near the end of the war because of these lectures, because thousands and thousands were going to hear, um, going to see and, and hear these women and men uh, speak. Um, but the other story as well, which is quite famous in Scotland, um, concerns the uh, Free Church of Scotland. So I tell the story very, very briefly. In 1843, Thomas Chalmers and his band of supporters broke away from the established church to form the Free Church of Scotland. Now, he sent several ministers over to the US to um, raise some money for this new organisation. And several of these missionaries actually um, went down to the southern states and they uh, received and accepted money from enslavers. They brought that money back and that went into the coffers of the Free Church, into building um, Free Church buildings and... Um, uh, and, and into, into that church. Now, that happened um, obviously shortly before Frederick Douglass actually came to the UK. But when he uh, when he did in 1845, he began lecturing about the Free Church first in Belfast um, in the the winter of 1845. But he really started this campaign called Send Back the Money in 1846. And while this did create a lot of criticism, um, the impact was um, incredible. There were songs and poems written about this Send Back the Money campaign. Douglass and two um, Quakers 
uh, Eliza and Jane Wiggum actually climbed Arthur's seat in Edinburgh and carved send back the money in the hillside. They, um, the town halls and churches of Edinburgh and Glasgow um, and lots of places um, like Aberdeen as well and Paisley and Dundee in Scotland, um, they were crowding out these town halls and venues um, to go and listen to um, Douglas talk about the free church um, campaign. Um, send back the money was actually painted in red paint on some of the free church buildings and tickets had to be sold to some of Douglas's meetings because the excitement was um, was so high. And one of the reasons why this impact was successful and why this impact worked was Douglas's incredible oratorical ability, but his, his he used his sort of position as a fugitive, as a fugitive, um, you know, person who had been enslaved um, to make that connection between that bloodstained money, as he called it, that was now obviously going into um, the profits of the free, uh, the free church. And he, he basically described how Southern Christianity was so corrupted and polluted by slavery that it was, it wasn't actually Christianity. You couldn't be a true Christian if you were an enslaver and raped or whipped your enslaved um, population. And yet these free church ministers had traveled all the way from Scotland, all the way to the U S and back again. And they had, they had taken that bloodstained money um, uh, that Frederick Douglass used to say um, that should have gone for my education and um, obviously put it in the, the free church buildings. Now, as a caveat to that in terms of the free church never actually did send back the money but as Douglas later wrote that it didn't obviously that was a shame that didn't happen but it was more of a case of an example a scenario in which he could make the people of Scotland aware and also obviously around the British Isles in general they could make them aware of slavery and how it wasn't just based in the US it had um, you know crept all the way over to to the UK in, in a sort of myriad ways. I think another facet of this that fascinates me is the idea that there's often very little, very small communities who have the experience of meeting these people from an entirely different culture and point of, of life. Can we trace how it perhaps changed those communities? Yeah, it's a good question. One that's slightly harder to try and um, research. What I found as sort of reading through the newspapers or um, trying to go through archives is that the people who heard Douglas when they were a child or um, when they were a young person, they still remembered it decades later as, you know, Douglas was the best orator I've ever heard. And that effect, that um, the effect that he produced, but also the anti-savory principles that he dispelled were were within me that, you know, for the rest of my life. Um there were several black abolitionists like um, John uh, Sella Martin and, and Douglas as well, who sometimes received donations from incredibly poor working class uh, men and women. And um, John Sella Martin in particular is really moved by this um, because uh, there was one woman who, who basically gave um, a shilling to Martin and just said, my family have gone without something for weeks in order to save up this and give it to you. You know, so, so you had um, women and men who obviously had this extraordinary, um, you know, they had such an extraordinary impact from these people. And there's also another really great um, anecdote where Henry Highland Garner is talking about um, the products of, of slavery, so obviously rice and cotton and, and encouraging people to, to boycott tobacco and things like that. And a sailor stands up in one of his meetings and says, um, I, um, I had seen slavery before. Um, uh, I thought I knew what its evils were, but I never have understood what slavery is 
until tonight, until I've heard your testimony and your words, and I'm never, ever going to smoke tobacco again. Now, obviously, we don't know whether that particular story is true. I would like to think it is. But I think that the way that these women and men are sort of making these kind of tiny sacrifices themselves, but also um, they demonstrate the impact um, of, of these men and women. And it's something that obviously we shouldn't forget not only in terms of these very, very small impactful meetings, but also all of the meetings everywhere, whether it's in in Wales or, you know, in in London or or Scotland, you know, we're walking past sites that are rich in in black history, um, that we're walking past these sites on a a daily basis. And they really show the sort of unrelenting campaign um, to try and um, teach the transatlantic public about the realities of, of, of slavery and to try and campaign for racial equality. So did these uh, formerly enslaved people from America keep coming after 1865? Yes, they did. So while the uh, slavery had been abolished legally in the US, obviously that didn't mean that um, slavery had been, uh, slavery or its legacies had been abolished um, sort of through society, um, obviously the political sphere um, and the culture um, of, of the South, but also the, the US as as a whole. So African-Americans continued to come to the British Isles after 1865 to, again, educate the British and Irish public that those legacies were um, still uh, with them. So there was obviously rising um, racism, uh, racial violence, um, particularly with lynching. You had thousands of African-American women, men and children who were murdered by white mobs and uh, obviously without um, any reason at all, apart from the, the fact that um, they were black and these white mobs were trying to um, exert obviously their um, uh, their power, their white supremacy um, over that particular uh, community. So uh, men and women uh, like Ida B. Wells is really a famous example. She came over in 1893 and 1894 to... Um, discuss um, anti-lynching and the anti-lynching movement and uh, she travelled around um, Britain um, and stopped in places like Birmingham and Manchester and Aberdeen and also in London to to really um, educate these audiences. There were um, some uh, sort of temperance advocates as well and some reformers who came to raise money specifically for um, the construction of black churches, black schools, um, you know, for for adults and for children as well. And um, you had um, others who came to um, discuss and just basically sort of educate about segregation as well, sort of the ordinary, ordinary segregational practices um, of the US, whether that was on transport, um, whether that was in education, um, health, uh, employment, um, uh, and things like that. Mm. And how how would you like people to um, look back at this period and have a different understanding of how these two nations interacted? I think what I would like people to remember most is that these African-Americans were sharing their testimony all around uh, Britain. They were making radical and politicised journeys to the British Isles, um, often at the expense of their own um, personal health and trauma. So a lot of the men and women who were coming over were giving exhausting lecturing tours. They were speaking for two or three hours per night, sometimes every night for months and that obviously didn't include the exhausting railway travel um, which obviously was coming in um, and was popular obviously in the UK and you know in parts of the UK in the 1840s and 50s um, but obviously the journeys were still very arduous and still very long they were recounting such traumatic experiences and um, the torture that they that had been enacted upon themselves but also 
um, that they had witnessed. They're also experiencing all these microaggressions, uh, racial microaggressions with um, with white abolitionists and also just the, the white British and Irish public. So I think that's really, really important to um, remember. But I think that all every single speech they gave um, across um, the, the 19th century was designed to... Um, highlight and shine a light on the evils of slavery, how it operated in the US, but obviously how racism and white supremacy operated in the transatlantic sphere in both the US and the UK, and how their testimony and their messages were sort of reflected back Mm -hmm. to the US. I think that it's this really odd moment in abolitionist history that in Britain, we tend to focus on white abolitionists. We tend to focus on Thomas Clarkson, obviously, you know, most obviously William Wilberforce. um, And that's obviously a lot earlier um, in the century and obviously in the late 18th century as well. In the US, there is a focus on um, several white abolitionists and almost a complete ignorance about black abolitionists traveling over to um, uh, the UK, obviously, although there's been some great scholarly works on it too um, but in terms of the public knowledge that that necessarily isn't isn't so much there so I'd really really love it if um, obviously people both on, on both sides of the Atlantic could obviously recognize that these African-American activists were um, going all the way over to the British Isles to, to share this sort of really radical message about what it meant to be part of almost a global sort of citizenry in that um, if you were um, uh, sort of a moral and if you were a true Christian person not a Christi- Christian who had been sort of polluted by that sort of um, evil influence of slavery then it was your duty to um, to end it or to raise up your voice or to amplify the testimony of these women and men um, to go obviously back to the US and for it to have a real impact and a real um, effect on the, um, the the movement towards abolition there. That was Hannah Rose Murray. As I said at the start you can read her article in the August issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes pieces on medieval dynasties, the Emperor Nero, the US civil rights movement and scare stories of Victorian London. And if you'd like to read more about Hannah Rose Murray's work, then do check out her website, frederickdouglasinbritain.com. And that's all for today. This podcast was produced by Ben Ewart and Jack Bateman. Do join us again on Friday when Michael Lewis will be discussing some extraordinary archaeological discoveries. (laughs) 